0: welcome to the fundamental health podcast i'm your host dr paul saladino this podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness in this podcast i will share with you everything i have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible thanks for joining me on this journey What is up, you guys? Another week is upon us. This one I am stoked about. This episode basically got recorded on the spur of the moment. I got so excited about this episode when I was sent a few articles, and I thought, oh, this would be such a good idea for an episode. So somebody sent me an article from Chris Cresser's website talking about the carnivore diet, and somebody sent me a couple of articles from selfhacked.com. In fact, Ben Greenfield sent me an article from selfhack.com as well. And I went through these articles and I thought, you know what? These articles actually represent the carnivore diet reasonably well. And then they talk about concerns regarding nutrient deficiency. And of course, the concerns with fiber and polyphenols. And I thought, let me just do an episode where I go through each of these articles in detail and basically respond to their criticisms. Because it's kind of frustrating when people write articles and you don't actually get the chance to respond to them. So that's what I did. Sat down with my buddy Nathan who is a friend of mine, a researcher with me. We've done a lot together. He's actually a software engineer, so he's one of these like super smart software engineers. You will hear him in this episode. Check his stuff out, but we kind of went back and forth and talked about these articles in detail, and I think that you guys will get a lot out of this. Some of these things I've talked about on previous podcasts, but this is probably the most detailed one I've done in direct response to some of these critical articles depending on when this podcast comes out, I am going on Joe Cohen, who is the CEO of selfhacked.com. I'm going on his podcast this week. So I bet that that podcast with Joe will not be out when this podcast comes out, but I will also get the chance to directly speak to him about the carnivore diet. I don't know if he's going to have concerns or want to do like a friendly debate. We'll see. But I thought this would be super fun and really enjoyed getting to respond to many of these criticisms because, as I've talked about before, when you look at a properly constructed nose tail carnivore diet, none of these nutritional deficiencies are a problem. And it just illustrates how robust a diet like that is. And it challenges our perceptions of which nutrients we need and which nutrients we may be thinking about incorrectly. We also talk about TMAO in this episode, which is something that Dr. Gundry likes to talk about. I went on his podcast. Hopefully that one will be out soon. And we kind of talk about why TMAO is not all it's cracked up to be. It's probably just a marker for insulin resistance. And so it's probably gonna be associated with cardiovascular disease, but not causing cardiovascular disease. Anyway, listen to that in this episode. So this episode, we started a little bit slow. I felt like we were kind of getting the rhythm. Nathan and I haven't done this before, but I think once we got going, it gets really good. This is a long one, but I think that if you can split it up into a couple of parts, you will get a lot out of this. If you're interested in the carnivore diet, if you're interested in nutrition, if you're interested in criticisms of the carnivore diet, I referenced Rhonda Patrick a couple times in this episode because she was on Rogan ages ago and he kind of caught her off guard and said, what do you think of the carnivore diet? She made a couple of criticisms. We address all of those in this episode among others. So I think you guys will dig this one for sure. All right. So What else are you going to dig? You are going to dig my newsletter. My newsletter is amazing. i put out a couple of editions. Probably by now I've put out three or four editions. It is paulsaladinomd.com front slash newsletter. It is called the Fundamental Health Newsletter. Every week I talk about an article that I like. I talk about things that I like. I've got toys that I like, whether it's an electric skateboard or a balance board or the acupressure mat. Um, some of them I'm associated with. Some of them I'm not. Most of them I'm not. All the ones I've talked about so far, I'm not associated with. I probably will talk about the Juve Light at some point in the future. I really like those guys. I am associated with them and I'm so stoked to be. So check out my newsletter. All right, you guys, this podcast is sponsored as always by ancestral supplements proudly brought to you by ancestral supplements as you know they have a nose to tail and bone marrow organ line from new zealand they offer meats like liver heart kidney pancreas brain in a simple convenient gelatin capsule so you don't have to taste it traditional peoples native american and early ancestor healers believe that eating the organs from a healthy animal would strengthen and support the health of the corresponding organ of the individual In other words, the traditional way of treating a person with a weak heart was to feed the person the heart of a healthy animal, kidneys for urinary ailments, pancreas for people with digestive issues and endocrine problems. So maybe even the brain for clear thinking, but I really appreciate their stuff. I've used it in the past. I recommended it to my family. I have a sister who's pregnant and has a young daughter who's my niece. She's the cutest thing in the world and they all take this because they're not so good at eating organ meats all the time. So when I'm traveling or I can't get tons of organ meats or if I just want to supplement with an organ meat that I'm not getting in my diet, I am happily uh, taking these and recommend them to you guys. Check them out. People are really uh, appreciative of these supplements. If you look on Amazon, they have a ton of great reviews. So visit AncestralSupplements.com today see what they can do for you. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. As I mentioned, I am affiliated with Juve, and I am so happy to be because I really like their near-infrared lights. And I put them on my stuff, my glands. Speaking of glands, and I am doing some blood work looking at testosterone and how it changed. So I am really excited about this. This is basically the idea that in morning and in the evening, we are going to get... Near infrared light. And if we're not outside, how are we gonna get the infrared light? So I think that evolutionarily it makes a lot of sense that as humans we need the light. We're supposed to be outside. We know we need ultraviolet light, but I also think we benefit from this near infrared. So check out juve.com, that's J-O-O-V-V.com front slash paul, and check those guys out. I really appreciate their lights and I feel better using them. And I like that if I can't get outside and hang out in the morning. For sunrise and sunset, I can at least get some near infrared. Actually, my buddy Anthony Gustin recently posted about Juve. He was using them in the evening prior to going to sleep and noted that he had improved heart rate variability and deep sleep with his aura ring. So, another plug there's tons of research about these lights. You guys, check them out. All right, without further ado, on to this episode, which I hope you guys will enjoy. I liked making this episode. Thanks to Nathan. Check him out. Let us know what you think, guys. You're going to dig this one. It is geeky as always, but geeky is radical. Check it out. All right, you guys, here we go. I am here with my friend Nathan. You guys may have heard of him from the Dave Feldman episode. Nathan was the very kind benefactor of an incredible steak dinner that I had with Dave Feldman at a steakhouse in Bellevue, and I have Nathan. It's good to get him on the podcast now. What we are going to do today is different than I've done in the past. I've really been interviewing a bunch of people who I thought were providing insights into various things regarding health and disease from the carnivore perspective. Recently, a number of people, Ben Greenfield, folks on Instagram, have forwarded me a couple of articles that I wanted to just really respond to. One of the articles is from Chris Kresser, and it is a consideration of the carnivore diet. And the other article is from selfhack.com, and uh, both of the articles suggest nutritional deficiencies and some criticism of the carnivore diet. So let's just dive into what we could do to respond to these articles, and I think this will be helpful because many times people are concerned about these articles, thinking that maybe there are deficiencies that are not addressed. So, Nathan, welcome to the show, my friend. It's good to have you.
1: Thanks. Good to be here. We've Uh, done...
0: We've done a lot behind the scenes. People need to know about you. So why don't you just introduce yourself a bit and tell people where they can find your stuff and then we'll dive in.
1: Yeah, I'm a software engineer based in Seattle. Um, You can find me on Twitter, Nathan equals one. Uh, I've been doing a carnivore diet for about a year now and had some really good results. And it's been awesome chatting with Paul behind the scenes about a lot of this stuff. So I guess, uh, do you want to dive in on this Chris Kesser article?
0: Yeah, I'll just tell people that. Nathan has been a great help to me. We often talk about research stuff behind the scenes before the debate that I did with Lane Norton. uh, Nathan and I sat down at least two or three times and kind of reviewed articles together. And as you guys will know, in the carnivore community, there are lots of smart software engineers. Software engineers seem to make the world go round because they're sort of intelligent, curious people. So without further ado, the first thing I want to respond to is an article that was on Chris's, Chris Cresser's website, and it's What is the Carnivore Diet, right? That's the name of the article. So Nathan, let's walk through this. So what do we see at the beginning here?
1: Yep. So Chris calls out the carnivore diet as uh, defined as eating only animal foods and staying away from all plant foods. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. What do you think?
0: I think that's pretty reasonable. I think that if we were going to define a carnivore diet saying it's all animal foods and no plant foods is pretty accurate. I think that oftentimes a carnivore diet gets characterized as all meat, which we know is incorrect. And one of the things that I have been focused on is promoting the consumption of animals no to tail, the consumption of organ meats. So Chris's definition is broad enough here that I think it's an accurate one. It's all animal foods with no plants.
1: Yep. He does call out uh, that we should look at the big picture, historical evidence, mechanisms, scientific data, Uh, So he calls out initially uh, ancestral populations like the nomads of Mongolia, Brazilian gauchos, Maasai, Inuit, etc. So uh, what do you think about his claims here that all of these, um, you know, native ancestral populations were also eating uh, plant foods?
0: You know, this is an interesting point. If people refer to the podcast I did with Miki Bendor on my YouTube channel, they'll notice that in that conversation, Miki made a really good point that... We cannot look at currently existing populations of hunter-gatherers and infer what previous populations of indigenous peoples were doing because the landscapes are so different for indigenous cultures in present day. People often make the argument that our ancestors have always eaten plants and that if we look at currently living hunter-gatherers like the Hadza in the Ikung uh, in Africa, that they eat a large plant component to their diet. And as Miki points out in that, podcast i did with him on my youtube channel and i think this is very accurate those are not good indications of what our ancestors might have done now in that conversation with mickey we talk about the stable isotope studies which are quite compelling and suggest that the levels of nitrogen in the collagen tissues of neanderthal and early humans were in fact so high that they suggest strongly that we were high-level carnivores <clears throat> that we were um eating mostly meat. And basically, the idea there is that as we eat more animal products, we will accumulate more nitrogen in our collagen, in our collagenous tissue. Therefore, we can compare the levels of nitrogen in the bones of... So we can look at the amount of nitrogen in humans at those times and compare it to other known carnivores like hyenas living in caves. And what we see is that the amount of nitrogen in human collagen, or the ratio between the nitrogen isotopes in human collagenous tissues was even higher than other known carnivores at the time, suggesting that humans and Neanderthals, they looked at both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, were eating almost entirely meat-based diets. Now, I think Chris makes a reasonable statement here that if you look at multiple populations of people who are living in the world over the last century, the Mongols, the Gaucho Brazilians, the Maasai, uh, he calls these other ones the randiel, the samburu from East Africa, the Russian Arctic peoples, the Sioux of South Dakota, and the Canadian Inuit. There are many populations of people who have primarily animal-based diets but may have small amounts of um, plant foods in their diet. Now, I don't think this suggests that we need plant foods. I think it just suggests that as humans, as indigenous humans, we are opportunists. And as I have suggested in previous podcasts, I really think of humans as facultative carnivores. The idea that we could eat plants during times of starvation, and I think that it's reasonable to assume or reasonable to suggest that many human populations will eat some plants. Now, when we actually looked at the a few of the studies that Chris cites in this, you'll note that the relative proportions of animal foods and plant foods in these studies is quite skewed toward animal foods, that these populations eat almost entirely animal-based diets. They have some plants. And I think that the point that Chris is trying to make here, I would disagree with. My 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 feeling is that he's trying to say that because all of these cultures have had some plant foods, we still need plant foods. Or There's some magical thing in plant foods that we need. And I would disagree with that and just suggest that just because cultures have eaten small amounts of plant foods does not in any way, shape, or form suggest that there's any unique benefit to plant foods, nor have I ever seen anything to suggest that there are any unique nutrients obtained from plant foods. So
1: that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Chris now calls out five reasons why the carnivore diet works.
0: So I think that these are reasonable. He talks about the carnivore diet mimicking fasting. He talks about um, the carnivore diet being a low residue diet, meaning low fiber Um, The carnivore diet is ketogenic. The carnivore diet changes the gut microbiota. We know that. I think that in a future podcast, I'll probably go into detail about the gut microbiota and can talk about that. I'll just say a brief word about the microbiome here. Chris does not suggest that it's a negative change to the microbiome for patients or for people with uh, carnivorous diets, but there's only really one or two studies that look at this. People were placed on pretty junk food carnivore diets. And you did see changes in the gut flora, but they were not very concerning, and the people didn't develop major gut issues. What we've seen clinically in people that we work with on carnivore diets is, if anything, resolution of GI inflammation. I think most people find significant improvement in GI symptoms of gas and bloating, things like this. There are case reports of resolution of inflammatory bowel disease, including Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So the fact that eating a diet composed of animal foods changes the gut microbiome is not in any way detrimental or derogatory toward an animal-based diet. It just means that if we eat protein and fat, our gut microbiome is going to change. No one really knows what that means. And there is so much more that we have to learn about the gut microbiome at this point to delineate whether that's in any way positive or negative or um, a uh, uh, any sort of a real significant change. So I would say Changing gut microbiome, probably not a big problem. I think that a lot of times people are trying to make assumptions about need for butyric acid-producing organisms, and these are often, I think, premature because if we've seen, as we've seen from some of these studies, we continue to produce short-chain fatty acids on protein and fat-based animal diets. It's just we may produce less butyric acid and more isobutyric acid or more propionic acid or more of the other short-chain fatty acids. So in brief... I don't think there's any concern about changing gut microbiome on an animal-based diet, but I can talk about this
1: more in the future. That makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely attest to my digestion being improved on the carnivore diet. Perfect poops. You got it. <laughs> so let's move on to what Chris uh, calls out as the biggest potential problem, which is nut- nutrient deficiencies. Uh, he goes uh, and calls out vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin K2, calcium. Uh, and then if, He claims that if you don't eat organ meats, you could potentially be deficient in vitamin A, folate, manganese, and magnesium. Do you want to comment on that initially before we dig into each one?
0: Oh, I think that this is an interesting thing. Both this and the next article, which we will be responding to, which is the article from selfhack.com, and I think most takedowns of the carnivore diet will try to suggest that you're going to get nutrient deficiencies. I think if you look across the internet, there are lots of people who suggest you're going to get nutrient deficiencies on an animal-based diet. And so I think this is a particularly relevant thing to talk about. And I uh, I do think that eating a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, as we will illustrate, will provide all of these nutrients in highly bioavailable forms. So let's go ahead and address his individual concerns about the nutrients because I think that each of these has some very um, illustrative points that are associated with them. So it looks like he starts with vitamin C. So this is the one that's at the top of most people's lists for nutrient deficiencies on an animal-based diet. The um, The idea here is that animal foods don't provide as much vitamin C as plant foods. Now, if we look at the research that's been done on vitamin C, it's quite interesting. There were a series of studies done in the 1930s and 40s, and I've talked about these in a YouTube video I did with Bart K. These were done on conscientious objectors to World War II, so not the kind of thing that would have ever been done uh, in today's world, probably for the better, but these conscientious objectors were given scurvy. They were deprived of vitamin C for six to eight months and developed scurvy. Now, scurvy is a disease essentially of inadequate collagen production. Vitamin C's role in collagen production is involving the hydroxylation step, of the single-stranded collagen molecules. And the hydroxylation step is crucial for those single strands to be made into triple helices of collagen. So basically, in order for the human body to make collagen, we need vitamin C. So when we're deprived of vitamin C and we get scurvy, we see markers of inadequate collagen production. We see blue, or excuse me, red spots on the skin, which are known as petechiae. We can see bleeding gums. People can lose their teeth. Basically, our connective tissues start to fall apart. So in this study from the 1930s, once people were given scurvy, they were corrected from that scurvy by varying doses of vitamin C. Interestingly, a dose of vitamin C as low as 10 milligrams a day was enough to correct scurvy. And the investigators in those studies note that there were no clinical differences in people when they got more than 10 milligrams of vitamin C. So once their scurvy was corrected at a clinical level, there was no benefit to more vitamin C from what they could observe. Now, 10 milligrams of vitamin C is a pretty reasonable amount. And I think one of the greatest disservices that is done to animal-based nutrition is that very few studies have actually looked at how much of nu- these nutrients are in various animal products. If you do a Google search and look at how much vitamin C is in muscle meat or steak, it'll say zero milligrams. But Nathan has this study pulled up, and the name of this study is Antioxidant Status and Odor Profile in Fresh Beef from Pasture or Grain-Fed Cattle. It's actually a pretty interesting study because it compares the nutrient profile of grass-fed and grain-fed meat, which is something we can talk about later. In this study, based on their analyses, there's about 12 milligrams of vitamin C in a pound of meat. Now, this would suggest that a pound of meat, a pound of animal meat, is totally sufficient to correct scurvy on a daily basis. Another thing I'll mention is that in the study from the conscientious objectors in the 1935, they didn't actually try a lower dose than 10 milligrams of vitamin C. It's possible that we could have corrected scurvy with even lower doses. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, liver is also a decent source of vitamin C. In fact, a much better source than muscle meat with three ounces of liver having approximately 30 milligrams of vitamin C. So I think that the vitamin C thing is something we can put to bed at this point, suggesting even at a nutritional biochemical level that there's adequate vitamin C in muscle meat and certainly in liver to prevent scurvy. And what we know clinically is that as long as you're not scorbutic or as long as you don't have scurvy, there's never been a study that actually suggested that excess vitamin C was beneficial. There were a number of vitamin C interventional trials, and none of them actually showed any benefit to supplementation with vitamin C from a, an antioxidant perspective. So there is essentially zero concern of scurvy on a well-formulated tail carnivore diet.
1: That makes a lot of sense, and I can certainly attest to having all of my teeth, and I can confirm that Paul has all of his teeth as well. He does not have any scurvy at the moment.
0: Neither of us has petechiae or bleeding gums either, and there's no cases of scurvy in the carnivore community, so that's crazy.
1: The next one that they bring up is vitamin E, and that's convenient because the same paper also measured vitamin E or alpha-tocopherol in grass-fed and grain-fed meat. And if we do out the math, we get to, I believe we came up with 14 milligrams in a pound of grass-fed meat.
0: And this is an interesting one because when Rhonda Patrick um, was on Joe Rogan, I think that he kind of put her on the spot and said, what are your concerns about a carnivore diet? And she said, well, vitamin E. And vitamin E seems to come up a lot. But if you look at the RDA for vitamin E for males, it's, twi- it's, it's between 15 and 20 milligrams a day. So it's, they say it's about 15 milligrams a day. So again, eating a pound of red meat a day, which on anyone on an animal-based diet that's a fairly moderate or meager amount of red meat, you're gonna get the RDA of vitamin E. Now, the other side of that equation is that clinically, I think it's useful to think about what may happen if we had any deficiency of, in the first case, vitamin C, like we talked about with scurvy, or vitamin E. Vitamin E serves a role in the membranes of our cells. It acts as an antioxidant, and it prevents oxidative stress. So if we do the thought experiment and we imagine that, we could get vitamin E deficient on an animal-based diet, which I don't believe we will, then we would see people with increasing inflammatory markers or increasing oxidative stress. And from my experience treating people on carnivore diets and clinically working with people on these diets, I have never seen that. A carnivore diet simply does not cause oxidative stress. You can measure oxidative stress by looking at lipid peroxides, F2 isoprostanes, things like 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is a measure of DNA damage. And we don't see carnivores with increased oxidative stress. In fact, most of the time we see it decrease. So there's no clinical evidence of increased oxidative stress on an animal-based diet. And we're probably getting the RDA for vitamin E in meat. It's just that people don't look to see how much vitamin E is in meat because it's something we don't think of very often. So I have very few concerns about vitamin E deficiency on a carnivore diet, and we don't see that in the community. The other thing I'll say about this is what I believe is an interesting thought experiment that people may find a little bit um, challenging, but just bear with me. It's the idea that eating animals is much more similar to Human biochemistry and human processes than eating plants. And so then I always ask myself when people suggest that there are these potential nutritional deficiencies, where is it in the animal? Where is it in the human? So, where is vitamin E in humans? And it's probably in the same place in other animals because, you know, mammals, ruminants, cows, deer, goats, sheep, we're all pretty much the same biochemistry, give or take. I mean, essentially 99.99% our bones are made of calcium, et cetera. So when people suggest there's a nutritional deficiency from eating an animal that looks essentially equivalent to a human biochemically, I always kind of scratch my head because we're eating things that look like us. And as I've talked about previously, we're eating things from the same operating system. So the idea is where is vitamin E in an animal? It's in the muscles. So why would we get deficient if we're eating an animal nose to tail? It's using the same things as cofactors that humans use. So hopefully that helps people understand the idea that eating animals nose to tail is probably not going to result in any deficiencies, or I would say is certainly not going to result in any deficiencies because these animals are built just like us. So what's the
1: next one he talks about? Let's talk about calcium since you brought up the bones. I know you've talked about uh, crunching on eggshells or chewing on the ends of bones. Uh, What are your thoughts on calcium on the carnivore diet?
0: Calcium is a really interesting one because I do have some concerns that unless we are doing a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, people may actually get deficient in calcium. And so this is an interesting concept and one of the reasons that I have advocated for people to eat either bone meal or eggshells. Now, if you're eating dairy, you're gonna get calcium, but in my clinical experience, a lot of people react immunologically to dairy. So I prefer to avoid that for people during their main Uh, first experience with carnivore or as they're going through their carnivore diet in the beginning to see how they react immunologically. So if we're not doing dairy, the best sources of calcium are bones. No surprise there. If we're eating a bone from an animal, it's going to give us the things we need to make bones in humans. The other part of the equation is eggshells, which I think is great because it makes you feel like a dinosaur or some sort of a monster. People always kind of look funny at me when I'm talking about eating eggshells, but they're a good source of calcium as well. So this also gets to the idea of calcium and phosphorus balance. I've talked about this in detail on the podcast I did with Brian Sanders from Food Lies. The idea here is that when we look at the way that other animals' physiology works, which may not always be the best proxy for human physiology, but I think it's a good guide, if we look at the way other animals' physiology works, especially carnivorous animals who are in zoos or are fed in controlled settings, we we see that it's important to balance the calcium to phosphorus ratio. On my Instagram a few months ago, I pasted, posted a study from the 1950s in which people agreed with this idea. And I think that it's not a crazy notion to suggest that humans probably want to have about 1 to 1.5 uh, times the amount of calcium as phosphorus in their diet. Now, a pound of meat has about a gram of phosphorus. So I think that for every pound of meat we're eating as people on animal-based diets, we need to get about a gram of calcium. Well, an eggshell has about a half, one and a half grams of calcium and uh, a teaspoon of bone meal is gonna have easily one to two grams of calcium in it as well. So either one of those sources will provide adequate amounts of calcium. Sean Baker is a good friend of mine. He argued that we don't need to get calcium from those sources because the calcium absorption increases on high-protein diets. What I sort of responded to him with was this idea that if you're eating a very small amount of calcium, increasing it three to four times doesn't really get you to the amount of calcium you need. There's a very small amount of calcium in muscle meat and a really meager amount of calcium in uh, egg yolk. So I think that for long-term bone health, we need calcium from one of these sources. Now, other people on the internet have said, I don't need calcium. I've been on a carnivore diet for four years and my serum calcium is normal. I'll just add that serum calcium is a really bad measure of total body calcium stores. This is not a good indication of total body calcium. You can't look at that. You have to look at PTH, which is parathyroid hormone. It should be in the lower fourth of the reference range, and you have to look at something called NT peptide. But I do think people should have calcium in their diets uh, from one of those sources on a carnivore diet.
1: Yep, that's good advice. And I think uh, another good source is whole sardines. I believe a can of sardines has... 300 to 500 milligrams of calcium. You can eat those bones without even noticing it. So fish, whole fish can be a good source. Uh, and you mentioned people react to dairy and the next one that Chris brings up is K2, which is pretty abundant in dairy. Uh, what do you think a a good source of that would be if people are avoiding dairy?
0: I don't understand when anyone says you're going to get a K2 deficiency on an animal based diet because the amount of K2 in animal foods is robust Especially if you're eating pastured animal foods, you can get plenty of K2, which is generally known as menaquinone. Chris Masterjohn has done a great uh, summary of this on his website. There's numerous forms of vitamin K2, MK4, MK7, MK11, etc. But the um, the basic idea is that you can get tons of vitamin K from egg yolks, liver, grass-fed muscle meat. There, will, I mean, I did a calculation the other day with one of my clients and. He was looking at like three to four hundred, maybe even five hundred micrograms of vitamin uh vitamin K2, which is way above the RDA from uh from animal foods. So K2 is just not a factor. I don't know why anyone would suggest that's an issue. So so far we've talked about calcium, vitamin K2, vitamin E, vitamin C, and I think we've pretty clearly shown that if you're eating nose to tail, those are not an issue. What's next on the list, Nathan?
1: Well, speaking of eating nose to tail, these are ones that Chris calls out uh, that are important if you're not eating nose to tail, which would be vitamin A, folate, manganese, and magnesium. I guess let's start with vitamin A. We know if you eat liver, you're getting an insane amount of vitamin A uh, and probably folate as well. Do you want to comment on those two?
0: Yeah, you're going to get tons of vitamin A in liver. Egg yolks are also another good source of vitamin A. Vitamin A is a good reason to eat nose to tail. One of the concerns I have for people eating carnivore diets that are primarily meat-based, is that they're not getting enough? They're not going to get enough vitamin A. Folate is a common deficiency in primarily meat-based uh, carnivore diets. It's a little difficult to measure, but you can look at homocysteine. You can look at serum folate, though perhaps that's not the best indicator. But folate is really not very abundant in muscle meat. So again, if you're eating liver, and I would recommend a robust amount of liver for people at least a few ounces a day, I think up to, I don't even know that I believe there's an upper end of safe for liver in a day, but I think that uh, you know, four to five ounces of liver on a day from time to time is totally fine. I probably eat about that amount most days right now, um, but I think you need to get enough folate. One of the ones that he doesn't actually point out here is riboflavin, which I'll just mention while we're talking about liver. It's important to get enough riboflavin and the really the key to this one is eating liver. If you're only eating muscle meat, I think a lot of people, especially those with MTHFR polymorphisms, that's methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, what a mouthful that is, are not going to get enough of their riboflavin unless they're eating liver. So think about where your riboflavin is coming from. There's been some great stuff from Chris Masterjohn. Again, two half tips to him that have suggested that in people with MTHFR polymorphisms, the adequacy of riboflavin is paramount. And if there is not enough riboflavin, the MTHFR enzyme will not function properly. And the reverse is also true. If there is a robust amount of riboflavin, probably three to five milligrams a day in the diet, that even people with 677 7 polymorphisms of MTHFR, which is generally the single nucleotide polymorphism that has been shown to affect the efficacy of that enzyme more will essentially correct and have normal homocysteine levels so get your riboflavin and it's mainly found in liver there are a few other sources but muscle meat is not a great source
1: i guess i need to up my liver consumption i have the 65 percent efficiency mthfr mutation and i have not been eating that recommended three ounces of liver a day so i'll have to pull some of that out of the freezer get more of that man All right, the next two are actually metals, I suppose. We have manganese and magnesium. Um, Manganese, what do you think about manganese?
0: Manganese is found in the liver and it's found in the bone. So again, we kind of return to this idea, where is it in the animal and what do we need it for? And this idea that if we're eating nose to tail, I don't think we're going to get a deficiency in something as long as we're eating the compartment of the animal that it's found in. But yeah, if you look at it, manganese is reasonably found in the liver. I had a client ask me about manganese the other day and I'll tell you, in the people that I work with, I usually do Genova NutriEval testing and Genova will test for manganese levels. I've never seen a manganese deficiency. I think it's fairly rare. Uh, there is some manganese in plants, but there's also manganese in animal foods and I think a really good source is the liver for manganese. Magnesium is one that a lot of people wanna talk about and this is an interesting one. I think that a lot of magnesium deficiency on carnivore and ketogenic diets may be due to sodium inadequacy. One of the things I've been speaking a lot about on my social media recently is encouraging people to get enough sodium or salt in their diet. I've spoken about the fact that when we transition to a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, we are going to uh, waste more salt. And if we do not give our body enough sodium, then the body is going to increase the cortisol and other uh, other hormones to hold on to sodium in the body. That creates things that we don't want to happen in the body. It can affect other hormones, and it can lead to magnesium wasting as well. So I think that the biggest thing with regard to magnesium is making sure you're getting enough sodium. Having said that, I have seen people for whom magnesium supplementation over and above, uh, their their diet is beneficial in terms of cramping, and stuff like this. And I've wondered whether this is due to uh, just a couple of factors. If we look at traditional sources of magnesium, I think we probably would have been getting it from spring water. Gerald Steiner water has, I believe, 1,800 milligrams. Oh, that's bicarbonate. Gerald Steiner water has 1,800 milligrams of bicarbonate. But if you look at the amount of uh, magnesium in Pellegrino or Gerald Steiner, it's, it's, it's not an insignificant amount. So if you're drinking liters of mineral water or spring water, you're going to get much more magnesium than you will from tap water. So I think that historically we probably would have gotten some magnesium from water. There's also the idea that we might've been eating fresher meat, which would have had blood in it. And that would have been a good source of magnesium, but I don't really have any trouble with people supplementing magnesium if they're getting cramps on uh, on a carnivore diet.
1: That's really interesting about the spring water. I'd never thought of that. I do supplement magnesium every once in a while. I was deficient Uh, I think when we first started talking and, uh, I like to take it before bed, I think it potentially helps me sleep a little better. Haven't really looked into the research into that too much, but I figured no harm, no foul.
0: No, I think the magnesium is really beneficial for people prior to sleep. Magnesium glycinate. I think there's some decent research there.
1: That's good to hear. I think I'll keep it up then. All right. So Chris calls out a couple more things. Uh, a big one in a carnivore diet is that it lacks beneficial potentially beneficial, I'll add in, phytonutrients. Uh, So you've talked at length about phytonutrients. Uh, Do you want to comment on this? He's calling out that these are uh, potentially uh, hormetic molecules and that hormetic hormetic stressor is a good thing. So maybe we can just talk about hormesis. Yeah, this is,
0: I think that the, the supposed benefit of plant phytochemicals they're called phytonutrients. I'm just going to call them phytochemicals because I don't actually believe they're phytonutrients, but they're, they're imagined. Their supposed benefit, I think, is probably the point at which I would disagree with most other functional medicine practitioners, Chris, Mark Hyman, et cetera, Stephen Gundry. Um, I think this is the biggest point of contention that many people have with a carnivore diet. And I think I've talked about this at length on other podcasts, but I'll just say a few words about it. So if you look at the phytonutrients, there are The main benefit that people suggest for these is antioxidant benefit, which is through a process called hormesis. Hormesis, simply put, is the idea that a small amount of a stressor is good for us. A small amount of a poison is good for us. Generally, plant chemicals act as hormetics by being oxidative stressors. They activate the NRF2 pathway in the liver and we make a little more glutathione. This is the same sort of pathway that is connected with the supposed benefits of sulforaphane and also the coffee polyphenols. I know a lot of people have wanted me to talk about coffee for a long time. And my contention here is that the studies that have been done are incredibly myopic. They're short-sighted. They only want to look at the way that these molecules are affecting Glutathione production, which, as I've spoken about in previous podcasts, is not something that is unique to plant molecules. We know that by living a radical life, heat stress, cold stress, exercise, we can create environmental hormesis or experiential hormetics that will increase our formation of glutathione to deal with those experiential stressors. We don't need plant molecules to have optimal levels of glutathione. But the studies of these molecules, whether it's curcumin or resveratrol or sulforaphane is another good example, or the coffee polyphenols, resveratrol has a little different mechanism that we can talk about. But let's say curcumin, the uh, sulforaphane, or the coffee polyphenols always focus on the fact that they increase glutathione and therefore may decrease DNA damage. Now, my problem with this is my problem with the idea of molecular hormesis or the idea that molecules may create a hormetic effect in the human body is that it doesn't consider the other ways that these molecules are harming the human body. And if you look at the research, invariably what we find is that because these molecules are from different operating systems, they are harming the human body in other ways. And these other ways are never spoken about in the research. In the case of curcumin, it's been shown to damage DNA directly. It's been shown to inhibit DNA repair. It's been shown to affect a potassium channel called the HERG channel. And it's been shown to do other negative things. Resveratrol inhibits androgen precursors. So resveratrol has an estrogenic effect and decreases DHEA. Sulforaphane has been found to oxidize membrane lipids and damage DNA directly, and sulforaphane also competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid gland, creating hypothyroidism, and is the cause of much, much goiter and endemic hypothyroidism in the world. So if we look at these molecules in other places of the body, besides the DNA damage, or in the case of resveratrol, the activation of the sirtuin family of genes, What we see is that they are damaging us in other ways. Well, why would we make this trade? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. None of these molecules is doing something that is biochemically unique. In the case of caffeine or, excuse me, caffeic acid or chlorogenic acid, which are the polyphenols in coffee, we don't need those polyphenols to generate adequate amounts of glutathione, Just because the $20 billion coffee industry can produce studies saying that they can increase your glutathione doesn't mean they're good for you because there are other ways in the human body that they are damaging for us. So I would argue the overarching theme here is that these molecules are net negative. Caffeine, caffeic acid, and chlorogenic acid have been shown to be clastogenic to directly damage DNA. So what we see is that it's not a good trade. The supplement companies... The coffee industry wants to focus on the benefits of these molecules. They never want to show you the other ways in the human body in which they are not compatible. When I was on Ben Greenfield, I called this collateral damage. There are these collaterally damaging effects of these molecules on other parts of the body for a non-unique effect in human physiology. So don't buy the hype. I really don't believe that these, these phytochemicals are beneficial at all. The other one that Chris Kresser notes is quercetin, And if you read my newsletter this week or a couple weeks ago, I talked about a study which showed that many of the plant flavonoids, which are a specific compound of aromatic plant molecules, have estrogenic activity. Well, males certainly don't want extra estrogenic activity, and females probably don't either. So the idea that quercetin is an estrogenic molecule has repeatedly been overlooked. I mean, Ben, who's a great friend of mine, and I love him, brought up quercetin on the podcast and said, what about quercetin? And I said, it's estrogenic, Ben. You don't want that in your body. So it's a tricky thing. There's, there's a lot going on here. But if we look, I don't think these molecules have any benefit. And I think that correcting this idea that phytonutrients even exist is really important. So I like that it's brought up, um, but I would strongly disagree with Chris here. And I think we have to call these phytochemicals or just phyto toxins in this case.
1: And what do you think about beta carotene? In that original uh, in the paper we talked about about vitamin E and vitamin C, uh, actually grass-fed cows do have beta carotene in small quantities. Uh, do you think that's something uh, that people should be concerned about, or be happy with, or uh, what are your thoughts on that?
0: I don't think the carotenoids or the beta carotene is particularly damaging. It's such a small amount, and we can convert it. Most of us can convert it into usable. Retinol vitamin A. So I wouldn't be concerned about beta carotene, but the idea that we need that is false because beta carotene is used in the body as a precursor for vitamin A. If you're getting retinol forms of vitamin A, then you're going to have adequate uh, vitamin A activity in the body without any concern about that.
1: Makes sense. The next thing he calls out is thyroid function, hormones, and fertility. So uh, the claim here is that carbohydrates are important for female fertility and carbohydrates are important for thyroid function. Um, I think you, you and I, or perhaps you on a podcast, have talked about the study from the folks at Verda uh, looking at levels of thyroid hormones on those on low-carbohydrate diets. Um, personally, I think my thyroid is working all right. What are, what's your thoughts on the, the thyroid side of things?
0: I think the thyroid thing is quite overhyped. People on ketogenic diets may see a lowering of their free T3 But generally, as I talked about in my podcast with Ken Berry and the YouTube I did with Dr. Jamie Seaman, who's an OBGYN in uh, Nebraska, check her out. She's Dr. Fit and Fab on Instagram. What we talked about was the idea that on ketogenic diets, we seem to develop increased tissue sensitivity to T3, and the slight decrease in free T3, which is perhaps only a 10% decrease on ketogenic diets, is probably not a big deal. From a medical perspective, the reason we don't think it's a big deal is because people's basal metabolic rates don't seem to change. As anyone who's familiar with the carnivore diet or the carnivore community will know, people don't end up getting uh, significant amounts of weight gain on a carnivore diet. Usually they lose a lot of weight. The TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, usually doesn't change at all. Sometimes it goes down. And though TSH may not be the best measure, it's probably the best measure we have of the body's feedback loop between the pituitary gland and the thyroid. And so the idea is, if the thyroid gland is not producing enough active hormones, these are T4, which gets converted into T3, which is really the main active thyroid hormone, that the pituitary will see that and will produce more TSH to kind of kick the thyroid to make more thyroid hormones. So if it were really an issue that this slightly decreased T3 on a ketogenic or carnivore diet were a problem, we would see the TSH rise, and we just don't. And there is a paper that I discussed in that YouTube with Jamie Seaman that we do see changes in tissue levels of T3 that may not be reflected in serum levels. So I really disagree with Chris here strongly. I don't think carbohydrates are needed at all for proper thyroid function. And there are so many examples of people doing uh, even better than they were from a thyroid perspective when they go carnivore. I have a client personally who has seen marked improvement in her Hashimoto's thyroiditis. She texted me the other day and said she was nearly in tears when her antithyroid peroxidase and antithyroglobulin antibodies came back significantly reduced after doing a carnivore diet. Those are antibodies that give us some sense of Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroiditis progression, and to see those return to normal or decrease on a carnivore diet is pretty darn incredible. So I don't think there's any evidence that we need carbohydrates for proper hormone function or proper fertility. I will say a word about fertility in females on carniv- carnivore diets, however. Um, I did an interview with Cassie Wild for my podcast, which will probably be out um, the week after this one. And one of the things that Cassie noted, she is a pretty incredible performance athlete who lifts uh, awesome amounts of weight and is probably way stronger than me, um, which isn't actually saying that much, but I try. And so she noted that since doing a strict carnivore diet for the last two months, she had not had a menstrual cycle. And what I said to her in that podcast was that I was concerned that she was eating too much protein and not enough fat. I think that the fat to protein ratio on a carnivore diet is important, especially for fertility. And so, again, this kind of gets back to eating nose to tail. The way that I see a carnivore diet from a nose to tail perspective is ancestrally, evolutionarily informed. And I really think, again, going back to my friend Miki Bendor that humans are fat hunters and that we should pay close attention to the fat to protein macro. I think that if we push the protein too high, we are going to see issues. And I've seen this reflected in some of my clients. I think that if we push protein too high, fasting glucose rises, hemoglobin A1C rises a bit, and we need to be careful with this. And I I think that if females are having alterations to their menstrual cycle, that they are maybe eating too much protein and not enough fat. We know that there is a continuum of protein consumption. And if we eat too much protein and not enough fat, we will get rabbit starvation at some point. Biochemically, I don't think we fully understand what's going on there. But at a at a very basic level, I think the idea is that, you know, we function as humans energy-wise on fat or carbohydrate. We don't really use protein for energy per se. We convert it to glucose and we use that for energy. But what you see in people who eat a lot of protein is... We see elevating fasting glucose levels, which I'm not sure is a good thing. So what I feel like is a better thing for most people is to focus on eating more fat and less protein. People can individualize this for themselves, but my personal perspective is that something like 75, 25 in terms of calories, percentages of calories between fat and protein is reasonable and people could even go to 80, 20, 80% fat. 20% protein. But I recommended to Cassie that she increase her fat because she was doing mostly mean meat. So, and people may want to know about fat loss at this point. I'm not convinced uh, that we need to limit fat for fat loss. I think that 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 is a theory that I don't necessarily agree with and that ultimately I think it's about caloric uh, restriction or caloric deficit, which we can achieve in many ways. But I think that I do personally have some concerns that many carnivores are doing too much protein. And we would see that in things like fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, fructosamine. And I think we can see that in female fertility. So if females are having alterations to their cycle on carnivore, I think they might want to adjust the amount of fat.
1: That's some good advice. And I've uh, played around with higher protein and had some issues with increased blood glucose and lack of energy. So I've definitely been uh, playing around with increasing my fat consumption as well.
0: And you did a period doing like two to one, like PKD style, didn't you?
1: I did do that briefly and saw some pretty good results. However, uh, I find it easier to both restrict fat and protein, capping my protein to about one gram per pound of lean body mass and eating fat roughly to satiety or perhaps a little less to keep the calories down uh, when I'm trying to cut body fat percentage.
0: I think that's pretty reasonable. When you did PKD, which is the Paleolithic ketogenic diet, which would suggest a two-to-one ratio of fat to protein, I believe in grams... Which gives you almost an 85 to 15 ratio uh, in terms of calories. You saw some higher ketone numbers and lower glucose numbers, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And I think I'll I'll refer to it as Keto AF and give uh, Josh. Hey Josh, log- logical shout links out to Josh on Twitter some uh, credit because I believe the PKD term is actually uh, trademarked or copyrighted or something at this point. What? So we'll we'll call it Keto AF. So yes, on uh, the Keto AF diet, I was able to eat. Uh, fat first, about 60 to 70 grams, and then uh, protein to satiety. And I was eating a total of well less than one pound of food and being totally satiated, which is very interesting.
0: Yeah. So shout out to Josh. Check out him. What is he on Twitter?
1: Logical links.
0: Logical links. And I think on Instagram, he's keto AF. He's got a meme page.
1: Yeah. Ketoanimalfoods.com has some info there. He's, he's got a blog there. Got some good data.
0: Yeah. So. um Hopefully Josh is listening to this and super excited that we're giving him a shout out right now. But yeah, I think that I've been experimenting with that more recently as well. I'm getting blood work tomorrow morning and we'll let you guys know how my hemoglobin A1c and fasting glucose adjust because previously when I was doing a carnivore diet, I was doing more meat and recently I've been doing significantly less between a pound and a pound and a half of meat per day and much more fat. And I am really enjoying that and finding it um, satiating and good for workouts. Um, my body composition doesn't seem to change a lot, but I think that it will be reflected in my, uh, glucose metrics. So let's get back to our, uh, bout with Dr. Uh, well not doctor, but if we get back to our bout with Chris Cresser,
1: Yep. And this is very relevant. The next point that he makes is that we could overtax our liver due to, uh, protein causing gluconeogenesis. Um, he's claiming that more than 35 to 40% of total calories is protein could lead to issues, and I think uh, you've just stated that that's probably true, and we probably do want to cap our protein.
0: I think I do agree with that. Now, Sean and I will probably have to thumb wrestle over this, and uh, I think Sean would disagree with that, but I I do think that we would not want to eat that much protein, and that you would not want to do that much gluconeogenesis. So on this point, I will agree with Chris Cresser. I think that if people are curious, they should do checks of glucose, fasting insulin hemoglobin A1C, fructosamine. Um, They could look at urea cycle markers if they're working with a functional medicine doctor and can do those intermediates. But yeah, I think we should be careful about capping our protein. We don't want rabbit starvation. We cannot just eat protein. And I think that uh, just doing protein is probably a bad idea for most people.
1: Yep, and he makes an interesting shout out here that I believe Mickey Bendor has claimed, which is that uh, certain uh, peoples have discarded Uh, low fat animals, they would hunt and kill an animal and find that it was not fatty enough. So it was simply discarded. So there is some evolutionary basis for capping protein here.
0: Yeah. And as I said, Miki has kind of said that humans are fat hunters. And I think that that's, that's true. I think we are fat hunters and, you know, I was actually on the phone with a client today and I came up with this analogy or this idea that basically humans are like a car and we can either run on unleaded fuel or diesel fuel and those are like carbohydrates and fat. And basically you can run on one or the other, but you can't run on protein. So if you're not running on carbohydrates, you better run on fat and getting enough fat is going to get fuel for the car. If you limit the amount of fuel in the car, you're you're not going to feel good. And your body has to do extra work converting that protein into one of the fuels that it can use. So you don't want to do that. It's kind of like the DeLorean and back to the future where they have that Cuisinart in the back and you know, they have to put in a whole bunch of like banana peels and stuff and convert it into the usable, um, you know, energy to make the 1.21 gigawatts. So don't stress your body out. You know, you want it to be able to do time travel and the DeLorean to go as easily as possible. Just give it the fat it wants.
1: That's uh, that's a pretty funny point. Uh, I think it's, it's also worth noting, or perhaps you could comment on your thoughts on this, that uh, because we're not eating plants and we're not getting things like protease inhibitors and we're not having other things to inhibit the absorption of protein, we might even need less than the rda perhaps we could get away with you know 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8 grams per pound of lean body mass instead of 1 or 1. 1.2 uh what are your thoughts there
0: yeah i think that there's an interesting probably sweet spot for the amount of protein that humans need um i believe that what is the rda or what do they recommend like 0. 0.6 per kilogram 0. 0.7 per kilogram i think
1: it's pretty variable i think numbers i've heard are around the the optimal from um folks doing exercise and resistance training research seems to be 0. 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of lean body mass.
0: Yeah, that's the upper end, right? But right. I think that the WHO has like a lower end for yes, protein the, uh, calorie malnutrition, which is like 0. 0.6 per It's kilogram. very low, very low. Yeah. I think that for most people, the sweet spot for protein is probably between 0. 0.7 and 1.1 1. 1 gram per pound of lean body weight. So that's 1.1, 1. 1 to 0.7 grams of protein per pound of lean body weight. So you got to take your weight and then you've got to adjust it for the percent body fat. I don't think we really need more than that. And I've heard lots of people, uh, talk about the fact that there's really not a whole lot of evidence that more than 1.1 per pound of lean body weight is probably not beneficial. And for most of us, that's not, you know, not a huge amount of protein. It's you know, probably between 100 and 150 grams a day, which is between maybe a pound and a pound and a half of meat. If you're eating liver, there's protein in liver. So you can subtract that. So yeah, it's a meager amount of protein. And I think of protein as building blocks and fat as fuel. So give your body the building blocks it needs, but then fuel the the vehicle, fuel the DeLorean, man. Go back to the future.
1: Let's go back to the future. Let's go back
0: to the future, Nathan. (laughs) Where would you go back? If you could go, where would you go?
1: I would love to go hunt some of those megafaunas.
0: Oh my God, that'd be so cool. All right, you guys, you heard it here. Like if you don't hear from us again, if we can create the DeLorean.
1: Well, we're going to go back to the future, which means I guess back to the past, not to the future in this case. We're going to tissue sample a woolly mammoth and start a woolly mammoth farm.
0: That would be amazing. I just think it would be cool to actually eat a woolly mammoth.
1: Let's do both. Let's do it. I
0: think they've got a pretty big
1: liver. That liver would feed us for a while. It certainly would. All right. So now we've got a question that Chris has an answer to, and I I know your answer already, which is, is the carnivore diet the ideal human diet? I know you would say almost certainly yes. Uh, Chris believes that we need uh, to consume animal and plant foods in their whole form to accomplish optimal health.
0: I would disagree with that. I think the carnivore diet is absolutely slam dunk. You know... Slam dunk the optimal human diet. I, I don't think that in this article, though I respect Chris, I don't think he's made any compelling points that we that plants serve any unique role. And that's something I've talked about multiple times in previous podcasts. I think that the argument comes down to why would you eat a plant? We know they're full of anti-nutrients, so they there better be something unique about the plants. And I've never seen a convincing argument for it. Obviously, I'm biased. I'm a huge proponent of this way of eating. I've seen a lot of people benefit, but I don't think there are really any compelling arguments that there is anything beneficial about plants. So when you think about it that way, it gets back to this thesis of mine, which I say on like every podcast that I'm on. So hopefully you guys aren't sick of hearing it, but it's this idea that plants are full of anti-nutrients, that animals represent the optimal food for humans. They have the most bioavailable forms of all the nutrients that humans need to function optimally without any anti-nutrients. That sounds like the optimal fuel to me.
1: Me too. That's why I eat the carnivore diet. Yeah, man. So we've got another, I think that was a a very good take on uh, Chris Kester's article here. And I think his article was pretty fair. I think he made, made some good points, uh, had some good cited sources. I would definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, I think it's pretty fair. And he calls out some alternatives that for folks who don't want to go full carnivore, low carb, paleo, fasting, mimicking diet, which I think is also trademarked Walter Longo, Uh, um, fast bar. Don't, don't eat those. That's not fasting. It's such uh, a bad idea. Periodic prolonged fasting. I think both of us are are fans of that. I've just completed some you know 80-hour fasts this week. Uh, a ketogenic diet. I think a lot of people start in keto and end up going to carnivore. It feels like a, a natural progression. So all of those are, if you don't want to do full carnivore for some reason, those seem like reasonable options to me. What do you think?
0: No, I think so. And I appreciate that Chris gives other options. I think that a nose tail carnivore diet is the most ideal type of diet, but ultimately I just want people to do what works for them. And, uh, if a carnivore diet seems too limiting, uh, then, then ketogenic or low carb paleo, or I think we could even throw in some things like low lectin paleo or low oxalate, low lectin paleo, um, are options. Maybe I should brand that like low lectin, low oxalate paleo keto paleo diet, which is basically carnivore plus avocados. Like that might be the only thing left
1: avocados can be pretty tasty
0: they can be i haven't had them in a long time i don't really miss them though me neither all right so next article we're going to talk about is from self-hacked
1: yep we've got an article titled 17 dangerous deficiencies dangerous deficiencies from the carnivore diet and we've got it uh you know written by and reviewed by quite a few folks so i think this article has some pretty good data in it um but I think we you may disagree with some of the, the assumptions here. So they call out some pros and cons. Uh, they seem pretty reasonable to me. One of the cons that I would call out, I guess the pros seem reasonable to me. However, the cons I think you and I would both disagree with. So the number one con they call out is high risk of nutritional deficiencies. We'll get to that. It uh, doesn't contain, and we've covered some of that in the previous uh, article, it uh, doesn't contain polyphenols and fiber. Uh, Paul has (laughs) talked at length about fiber and we just spoke about polyphenols,
0: which we can talk about a little more as well.
1: Yep. Uh, it might not be ideal for longevity if not combined with fasting due to, uh, mTOR and IGF one, the, the evil mTOR
0: and the evil IGF one. I would love to, so we will dig into that in detail. This is something I talked to Stephen Gundry about when I was on his podcast, but we will, we will break this down for you guys because that is not true. I, uh, I fear that, uh, self hacked has misrepresented this case.
1: Uh, we may have lower brain serotonin, apparently, because carbohydrates increase serotonin in the brain.
0: That is not true. <laughs> uh,
1: we may have increased oxidative stress, and we can get to the mechanisms there and why they claim that in a little bit. Yes. Uh, we may may cause gut microbiome issues. That's very non-specific. Um, and another one is a large carbon footprint, which I think I would disagree with, based on what I've heard from folks like Peter Ballerstadt. Um, I was lucky enough to have dinner with him and some other folks, and listen to his talk at low carb Seattle. And I'm pretty sure if I eat a cow from Washington or we eat some grass fed cows raised, you know, 50 miles from here, I think we're doing pretty good carbon footprint and ethically one animal can feed me for a year. So that's, that's pretty good, I would say. So let's dig in a little more.
0: With regard to the carbon footprint stuff, what I'll say is I recorded a podcast with Peter Ballerstedt yesterday, it'll probably be out a week after this one, I've been busy, you guys. I'm just I'm just dropping stuff. I'm just dropping knowledge all over the place. So I recorded a whole podcast with Peter Ballersted, who is an awesome guy. He refers to himself as the Sod Father, and he has a group called the Ruminati, so it's kind of funny shit. But anyway, I recorded a whole podcast with him and talked about some of the environmental issues. I think if people have questions about environmental issues, we probably... We'll not go into those in tons of detail in this episode, but I would recommend the episode with Peter Ballersted. He's also been on other awesome podcasts like Human Performance Outliers, et cetera, and he talks at length about the fact that many of these concerns about the environmental footprint, the carbon footprint related to uh, animal-based eating are just wrong. If we just, as a basic sentence, I will just say that if we look at ruminant agriculture, it is regenerative in many ways. It restores the quality of the soil. It can decrease the amount of carbon in the atmosphere by increasing the soil carbon carrying capacity. There was a recent study done from white oak pastures, which showed that they were actually carbon negative because of the carbon sequestration in the soil there. We need ruminant animals. We know that the methane produced from ruminant animals is cycling and is converted to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and then is... uh, reduced in plants into carbohydrates and that the ruminant animal production of greenhouse gases is very small compared to the overall production of greenhouse gases from technology and transportation and there is no increase in the total amount of co2 in the atmosphere from ruminant agriculture it's cycled anyway you can listen to the talk i did with peter baller said coming up next week it's a teaser for that one we will talk all about the environmental stuff
1: so I'm looking forward to listening to that one. Yeah, it was good. And I, I would note that uh, even some vegans agree with this. I was listening this morning to Sean Baker and Zach Bitter's podcast, Human Performance Outliers. They had a, a vegan who was uh, you know, very rational and balanced. And one of his statements was that eating a locally raised grass-finished cow is perhaps the most ethical food choice you could make uh, from an environmental standpoint and uh, generally ethical standpoint of only taking a single life. So that's uh we got some points from the vegan camp there too.
0: They they have they have nothing against us anymore. Their defenses are falling.
1: <laughs> so let's dive in again to these dangerous deficiencies. Dangerous deficiencies. We've talked about vitamin A is there anything else to to say on that one?
0: I don't think so. I don't even know why self-hacked fears that people would get a vitamin A deficiency. Basically again the overarching context here is If we are eating a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, which anyone listening to my stuff, anyone familiar with my work will know that a nose-to-tail carnivore diet is the only way to do this, I'm not worried about a vitamin A deficiency in any way, shape, or form.
1: Yep, and and they state this here, if you add just a single ounce of beef liver, you would get plenty of vitamin A, Um, so that seems like a non-issue here. Uh, they do call out uh, biotin and folate. And we talked about folate, but we did not talk about biotin. I think we get that from egg whites. Is that, a, is that correct? Is that a good source?
0: Uh, no, it's the reverse. So egg whites have avidin in them, which binds a, yes. which binds biotin. And the biotin is found in egg yolks. And biotin is also found in robust amounts in, wait for it, guess, you guys, liver. So folate and biotin easily uh, found in very bioavailable forms in liver. Again, more arguments to eat organ meats
1: and it looks like here uh they say goose liver would be a good one if you like your pate uh or foie gras i suppose um or salmon also contain good sources of uh folate or biotin so we're in the pacific northwest we have good sources of salmon and salmon roe here which i know we both enjoy yeah no issues with those i
0: really don't think that there's any b vitamin deficiency when you're eating nose to tail especially if you're eating liver now i talked about this in the past and I'll just clarify this, there are some B vitamins in muscle meat, but it's interesting. It's kind of like complementary that there are similar amounts of B vitamins, or I should say complementary B vitamins in the liver. So some B vitamins are found in muscle meat, and the other cohort of B vitamins are found in the liver. Things like folate, biotin, uh, riboflavin, richer in the liver, probably B6, and some of the other ones like niacin, pretty good in the muscle meat. So if you eat muscle meat and liver, you're going to get all the B vitamins you need. I'm not saying don't eat muscle meat. I'm just saying you need to eat both.
1: Makes sense. The next one they call out is vitamin C, and we spoke about that. Uh, I will give them minus a few points for not finding the paper that I did uh, because they claim that uh, not grass-fed beef has zero milligrams, which is actually data from the USDA who states it as assumed zero. They did not actually even bother testing.
0: And as, as Nathan is pointing out, that paper that we referenced Noted that there was 12 milligrams of vitamin C per pound of meat. Was it the same for grass and grain fed?
1: Uh, It was a bit less in grain fed, uh, but maybe about uh, two thirds as much. So you'd need to eat uh, maybe 30 to 40% more uh, grass, grain finished beef to get the uh, 10 to 12 milligrams of vitamin C.
0: And if we just so people have an interesting comparison there. Uh, What was the difference between vitamin E, between grass and grain-fed meat?
1: It was about half as much in uh, grain-finished meat for vitamin E.
0: So again, one of the things I've spoken about is that I prefer grass-fed meat. Uh, I think I prefer it for these reasons uh, and the fact that it's going to have, I believe, less bioaccumulation of environmental toxins. In the podcast I did with Anthony J, I spoke about the fact, or we spoke about the fact that uh, grain finished animals will be exposed to atrazine on the corn, and that atrazine can act as a an estrogenic molecule. It probably does bioaccumulate in the animals. So even though uh, grain finished or even grass fed animals are not necessarily given hormones, they may have xenoestrogens in the form of atrazine on the grains they are eating. So for many reasons that I'll probably speak about in a whole podcast, I prefer grass fed beef and. I think from an environmental perspective, everyone would agree that a grass fed animal is better from an environmental perspective. So
1: makes sense. Next one is vitamin E, which we just talked about a little bit. And I think uh, we can totally get the vitamin E that we need from grass or grain finished beef, as we we just stated. Yeah. Um, And there are other potential sources that you could get it from uh, in your carnivore nose to tail diet as well.
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of these are the same as Chris Cresser's, but we're happy to make sure we cover all the bases here. Uh,
1: next one, vitamin K. Uh, they claim here that uh, canned tuna is a good source. Um, beef, it looks like if you eat grass-fed, more than enough. Some chicken, some salmon, more than enough. Uh, any any other things you want to add in here? It looks like they, they're basically saying as long as you don't eat just muscle meat, you'll be good. Yeah,
0: I think that that's the case. I would caution people against tuna in general. Um, it's quite high in mercury, and I have seen some pretty high mercury levels in some of my clients eating foods like tuna or sea bass, so be careful with the fish you eat.
1: Yeah, stick to those uh, salmon, salmon, sardines, non-king mackerel. Yes. They're all very tasty.
0: Swordfish, stay away from it. No good.
1: All right, uh, so we can get plenty of vitamin K. Next, they call out minerals. One is, uh, you've talked about a lot, boron.
0: Boron is an interesting one. I, I I, got interested in boron. Actually, you and I were talking about boron a few months ago, Nathan. And the idea is that if we look at an animal, boron is really only found in the bones. This may be a good reason to eat bone meal. You can get a decent amount of boron, a few milligrams in a teaspoon of bone meal. Now, I don't think anybody really knows how much we need. Um, boron does seem to be beneficial. I suspect there's boron in eggshells, but we haven't actually done the data to... There's nobody... I don't think of anybody's actually done the analysis of that to see if there's boron in eggshells, but um, there is some evidence that dosing boron at about 10 milligrams a day for a few weeks will lower sex hormone binding globulin and can increase free testosterone. What I discovered in myself was that that happened, but that when I rechecked testosterone about a month later after staying on boron, the sex hormone binding globulin had gone back up and the testosterone was kind of back to normal. So it seems that if you want to use boron to affect free testosterone, you have to cycle it, which to me suggests that maybe it's not that beneficial for that use. Uh, I know there was a big interest in this and people always message me and say, how do I do boron? And I think that As long as you're getting a few milligrams of boron a day, you're going to be fine. And I think that a good source of that is bone. If you look at an animal, it's really only found in the bone, which is another argument to eat animals' nose to tail.
1: That's interesting. And I'd love to see more studies on this because I imagine the boron content has to do a lot with the soil that the grass is growing in, things like that. And I think they actually call that out in here that it's very poorly studied. We don't really know if there's other forms of boron like borates in animal tissue. Uh, So I think this one is kind of um, pretty much a mystery. Uh, But as you say, bone meal, probably a good option.
0: And the only thing I'll say about bone meal is people should be aware that you want to pay attention to the amount of lead in the bone meal. Unfortunately, we've polluted the earth and a lot of municipal drinking water is high in lead. And if the cows are drinking water with lead, they can bioaccumulate lead. I generally prefer to get bone meal from... Uh, New Zealand, and they use young cows bones, which are likely to have less lead. There's a company that I've spoken about before, uh, traditional foods market whole bone calcium. That's from uh, the company in New Zealand that meets prop 65 standards for lead. So if you want to do bone meal, you can either try that supplement. Now that I mentioned on the podcast, it's sure to sell out. Um, I don't have an affiliate agreement with them, unfortunately. And I, um, I also have seen people use vertebral bones, some of the more porous bones. You boil them for a few days, and you can crush them up into your own bone meal, or you can eat chicken bones and things like that in your bone stock. But I think eating bones is something that is not as foreign evolutionarily as people would imagine. Um, I'm aware of hunter-gatherer tribes that eat small bones from uh, smaller animals they kill. And as Nathan mentioned, sardines have small bones. That's a good source of calcium and, and probably boron and those things in there.
1: Yep. And I think, uh, some scientists decided to try eating an entire shrew, uh, and none of the bones made it out. Uh, so it's, uh, if you Google that, I think you'll find a paper or something, but, uh, that's, that's somebody sent that to
0: me. It was called the digestion of the shrew.
1: That's pretty bizarre. I don't know why this guy decided to do that, but Hey, if you eat the bones, your body uses them. They're they're not going to end up coming out the other side. It
0: is bioavailable calcium. If people wonder in bones, it's, Calcium hydroxyapatite. It's quite bioavailable.
1: And speaking of calcium, that's the next nutrient they call out here. Um, And they, as we said, say that uh, canned fish like sardines that have bones, whole sardines, uh, do have up to uh, 450 milligrams per 100 grams. And uh, they also note that beef tripe has a good amount of calcium.
0: Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I, I haven't had that in a while. When I went to medical school in Arizona... I think I had menudo once, but I would eat that. It was it was decent, but I don't have good access to it right now.
1: I had some at a restaurant called Animal in L.A. that was uh, very good. Really? Yeah.
0: How do they prepare it?
1: I don't remember. All of the dishes were very complicated, but all involved various bits of an animal. I think I ate 15 different dishes of pig's ears and thymuses and God knows whatever else. I'm going to go there. I'm going to check it out. I would definitely recommend it. All right. The next one here, potassium. Uh, we've talked about magnesium. We talked about sodium, but we did not talk about potassium. So let's talk about potassium.
0: Yeah. Potassium is an interesting one. So in the kidney, when we are sodium deficient, we will waste potassium. So I suspect that a lot of potassium deficiency in people, and I don't see it that often, but I suspect that people who are deficient in potassium on ketogenic or carnivorous diets may not have enough sodium. And so, Again, if you get enough sodium, I suspect this will help correct both magnesium and potassium deficiencies. Having said that, if people are having cramps, I don't think it's a bad idea to supplement with a little bit of potassium and, like I mentioned earlier, a little bit of magnesium. I just think that you know we're not getting the same food in the same ways. We're not eating meat that's as fresh as it was. Perhaps blood would have been a good source of those electrolytes traditionally, but I don't have any problems supplementing with those. The only thing I'll say about potassium is that most potassium supplements in stores are very low dose, 99 milligrams. I believe there's some sort of law that they can't be more than that. So if you're going to supplement with potassium, know how much you're getting. Don't take high doses of potassium unless you talk to your doctor because you can overconsume potassium. It can be dangerous. I will leave it there, but be safe, you guys. Just know what your serum potassium levels are. If you have kidney disease or you're on ACE inhibitors or other uh, ng receptor blockers, hypertensive drugs, be careful. Some of those are potassium sparing. There are potassium sparing diuretics, which can raise your potassium. In which case, if you're taking potassium, that can be dangerous. So a word of caution, but generally I think potassium supplementation is fine. And I think that the main thing is getting enough sodium.
1: That's good advice. I think, uh, they also recommend you could use a salt alternative, like low salt, which is, uh, high potassium with potassium chloride mixed with sodium chloride, they also state that mollusks and salmon, uh, especially octopus, are very good sources of uh, potassium. So if you want to mix up your carnivore diet and eat some sea creatures, I think that's uh, potentially an option as well. Right? I
0: like octopus. Octopus is
1: really good. It's very good. I had actually some barbecued octopus at the same restaurant, and it was delicious.
0: Dude, we got to go to that restaurant.
1: All right, we'll do it the next time I'm in L.A. That
0: sounds amazing.
1: Uh, next one they bring up that I believe you've talked about before, along with zinc, is copper. Um, so copper, uh, they claim here beef liver is an extremely rich in copper. So as you recommend, eat the beef liver, I guess.
0: That's the thing. And I've spoken about this before. I do worry that if people are just eating meat-based diets, you can get excess zinc and excess zinc is not toxic by itself, but zinc, excess zinc can create a copper deficiency. Both zinc and copper are stored in the same cells in the small intestine in a protein complex called metallothionine. And that can get sloughed off and if you eat, or eat excess zinc without adequate copper, you can get a copper deficiency. And copper deficiency is no joke. It has neurologic symptoms that kind of mimic B12 deficiency, which are involve balance and proprioception. So you don't want a copper deficiency. And I think people worry about the copper in liver. I would not worry about copper in liver because zinc and copper are balanced. Again, it all works out if we eat the animal nose to tail. We're not gonna get a copper excess from liver. But if we eat zinc rich foods like muscle meat without a copper source, we could get copper deficient.
1: Interesting. And they do also note here that uh, eating two pounds of uh, grass or grain-fed beef, depending on the soil, etc., will get you pretty darn close to your RDA. So of perhaps copper. you yeah. don't even necessarily need the liver for the copper, although you should probably just eat it because it's, well, I think it's pretty tasty and it's got all the other good stuff in it.
0: Yeah, I do worry that if you're eating uh, that 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 much meat, may have a little more zinc than you need. I just would recommend that people keep an eye on their zinc and copper ratios.
1: Makes sense. Next one we've talked about magnesium. Uh, Supplement it if you want, I guess, and uh, it, it does exist in meat. Yeah,
0: it does exist in meat. Yep. Uh,
1: and then on to manganese again. We we talked about that one. Um, in the liver. Yep, in the liver. Again, it's a good there's a theme here, guys.
0: Nose to tail for the win. Like, these these websites are just trying to take down the carnivore diet, but they're not hip on the nose to the tail.
1: And again, they note um, some good options. The uh, blue mussels, beef tripe again, uh, trout, bass, and uh, bison are apparently good sources of uh, manganese. Uh, next one is lithium. Um, looks like those come from grains and vegetables. So what do you think about lithium?
0: Lithium's in the water too, so this is one of these things that we're going to get in spring water. Um, and you know, the lithium, I would just say like, where is it in the animal? Um, we can get it from that source in the animal. I'm not even sure where lithium is stored in the animal. It might be stored in bones. It might be another reason to eat bones. We can look into that. But I would say if you're eating spring water or you're drinking spring water, now I don't know how you would eat spring water, but if you are drinking spring water, if you're drinking mineral water, you're probably going to get plenty of lithium. But uh, just be aware of that one. I don't worry about that one terribly much.
1: Makes sense. There is some interesting data on lithium about uh, communities with higher lithium content in the water having lower rates of depression. That's There's some interesting things there. Maybe we, you and I should look into lithium sources in our water and in beef and all of that.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to look where in the animal lithium is stored. I'm sure it's somewhere. Um, we can kind of talk about that in the future. Maybe I'll follow up with that after this episode.
1: All right. And now we're on to the, uh, they claim healthy plant compo- components. So uh, polyphenols, uh, we've got lycopene, uh quercetin. What do we think about those?
0: Well, bean is in the family of resveratrol. Uh, we spoke about this when we were talking in the Chris Kresser article. And I think, again, the idea here is there's really no convincing evidence that polyphenols are beneficial for humans in any way, shape, or form. And I think that the research is widely misinterpreted. Most of these are net negative. And if you actually look at a series of interventional trials, which I've mentioned in previous podcasts, there have been trials in which they have given large amounts of fruits and vegetables to interventional groups. And they matched it with a control group of humans who had no fruits and vegetables for four to 10 weeks. And they looked at markers of oxidative damage, oxidative stress, DNA damage. And what did they find? No difference. So, I'm not aware of any interventional trials with fruits and vegetables that have shown that they have benefit from a oxidative stress or DNA damage perspective when actual real endpoints are considered and when actual real people are considered in the studies. So again, there are some studies which show that polyphenols in coffee may decrease DNA damage, but those researchers are failing to show you the other ways in the human body where those caffeine polyphenols are damaging directly damaging to DNA, clastogenic, et cetera. So in the actual trials in humans with control groups, no change, no benefit to pounds and pounds of fruits and vegetables per week and probably just created much more gas and GI distension in those people. They had no benefit from an antioxidant perspective. So polyphenols, you guys, these are unicorn farts. They're just made up. These are fairy tales. They They are not actually that beneficial for humans, which is a crazy concept. And people are going to start realizing it and the whole thing is going to fall down because everybody thinks these are the bees knees, but they're just, they're just the Easter bunny and Santa Claus. They ain't real. You guys, oh sorry boy. for any kids that are listening.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you're less than 12 years old, uh, definitely those things are real. But earmuffs, earmuffs, uh, polyphenols, not, uh, not very important. We don't think. Um, and also, um, perhaps you should put up a challenge like Dave Feldman has done to find a study that meets, one of your criteria if such a study exists um if you know of a study where polyphenols have impacted heart endpoints or all cause mortality i guess tweet it at paul or i we'd we'd love to see it
0: yeah not that not we're not aware that it exists and there are plenty of negative studies out there
1: we have looked yeah and the next one you've talked about uh, again is fiber and uh i think we could talk for hours about fiber but i guess maybe we can uh an interesting one that I heard recently was that uh, insoluble fiber can increase. Um oh, shit. Sorry, brain fart. <laughs> <laughs> insoluble fiber can increase rates of colon cancer, while soluble fiber may not have uh, as many issues. So, uh, do you want to talk about maybe the differences between soluble and insoluble fiber and why we don't need either of them?
0: Well, soluble and insoluble have to do with the way that we process them, whether we can break them down in the gut and whether they retain water in the gut but basically the idea with fiber is that if we really look into the studies and i've talked about this tons and tons on other podcasts, so in the interest of time i won't go into it in a lot of detail but if you look at the if you look at the research with fiber the um, there really is not any conclusive evidence that it's beneficial in any way, shape, or form. There have been studies in terms of diverticulosis. I've mentioned these in the past, and the studies do not suggest that fiber is beneficial for diverticulosis, which is different than diverticulitis. Diverticulitis is inflammation of a diverticulum. Diverticulosis is the formation of these diverticuli, which are these pouches in the colon, these sort of sacs. And I think that the diverticulosis happens because of GI inflammation. It appears to be an actual immunologic process, we see lymphocytic infiltration in the colon to make diverticuli. But no evidence that fiber is beneficial for that. In fact, one study with colonoscopy showed that, uh, suggested that there was a correlation. The more fiber you ate, the more diverticulosis you had. Fiber has also been studied in constipation with mixed results. I think many people listening to this will know of the study from the American Journal, a World Journal of Gastroenterology from 2012, which is nearly famous at this time. The title is something like Stopping or Reducing Dietary Fiber Intake Reduces, uh, Relieves uh, Constipation in Those with Idiopathic Constipation. In that study, when fiber was completely eliminated, people with idiopathic constipation were able to resolve their symptoms 100%. It was a small study. I think each group was about 20 or 30 people. But in people with idiopathic constipation, meaning people in whom constipation was not known to have a cause. There was no cause for the constipation. Removal of fiber completely resulted in total resolution of constipation. So quite impressive results there. The idea that fiber is needed for healthy poops is not true. Uh, Both of us can attest to the fact that our bowels are regular, that we have bowel movements every day, and they're well-formed. They're not loose. Sometimes people, when they're doing carnivore diets, will get loose stool in the beginning. I think this is a changeover of the gut flora. I can speak about that separately and probably having to do with uh, a little bit of adjustment in the way that we absorb bile acids in the small intestine. But the idea here is that if you really look into the literature, fiber is another one of these ghostly specters that is often repeated and really doesn't have a whole lot of evidence to back it up. And certainly in terms of colon cancer, it's been studied numerous times and found to be of no benefit, as Nathan is suggesting, after his brain fart. Uh, soluble fiber may actually, or excuse me, insoluble fiber may increase colon cancer rates. I've seen the same thing. In fact, there was a study that I had cited before suggesting that asphagola husks, which are essentially psyllium husks, like Metamucil, increased rates of colonic adenoma recurrence. So if you just look at this repeatedly, fiber is just not all it's cracked up to be. We don't need it. We just don't need it. There's never been any really conclusive evidence for this. The last thing I'll say about fiber is that, uh, again, going back to Rhonda Patrick on Joe Rogan, and I think Stephen Gundry has talked about this too. Uh, I went on his podcast a few weeks ago. Hopefully that one will be out soon. But there is one study from 2016 in the journal Cell, which is a mouse study that many people report uh, and say that we need fiber to have a healthy gut mucus layer. This, to me, is just lunacy because we know that many people have improvement in their gut health when they fast, and the idea that fasting would uh, completely derive your gut of any nutrients, that that would decrease your mucus layer and cause inflammation is crazy. People have fasted for over a year. There was a guy that fasted for, I believe, 370 days straight, and he did not develop inflammatory bowel disease nor any clinical evidence that the mucus layer in his gut which is a layer of mucus that sort of uh, is between the gut epithelial cells and the cells uh, and the bacterial organisms and fungal organisms inside of the gut, that that mucus layer degrades when you fast is crazy. That does not happen clinically. And that that mucus layer would degrade when you deprive your colon or your small intestine of fiber is just not supported by the science. There was a study in mice from 2016 in cell. That's the one people repeat. But What they found in that study, if you read it carefully, again, this was a mouse study in which they infused a, quote, human-like microbiome of 14 microorganisms that liked fiber. What they found was a small change in the amount of mucus without any histopathologic changes suggestive of inflammation in the gut. And that is the study that everyone is quoting, saying that you need fiber for a healthy gut mucus layer, which is just crazy, you guys. This is bollocks. I love saying that word.
1: It's a good one. It's it's
0: bollocks. It's baloney. It's just, it's hogwash. There's no evidence for this. And then we just think about the fiber. Think about the fasting example. You know, if you fast, you're not going to lose the mucus layer in your gut. It's helpful to fast. We know this. The mucus layer is there. It's going to fluctuate. It's always going to be there, even if you're eating a no fiber diet. So the next time you hear someone say that you need plant fiber to have a healthy mucus layer, you just, just give them the face palm. It's just
1: so silly. It is, and I can definitely attest that I have perfect and odorless poops.
0: <laughs> I know, right? The smell is different. I mean, let's not get too graphic here for people, but if people are aware, like, there is so much less gas, essentially, no gas, no bloating. The poops are not that bad. Like, if you go into the bathroom after a carnivore has pooped, it doesn't really smell like it doesn't smell bad. It doesn't smell like a truck stop bathroom. Is it right? All right. That's enough.
1: It's too, <laughs> All it's right, too let's, graphic. Let's move on. We're, we're getting a little sidetracked here on Poop smells. terrible bathrooms. If you want to see a terrible bathroom, watch train spotting. Okay. Uh, the next one, I haven't heard of this actually. I just had to give it a quick Google. It's myo uh, which they claim is, uh, a very healthy compound, uh, found in fruits, beans, grains, and nuts. And if you eat those, you'll get grams a day in a 2000 calorie diet, whereas if you eat meat, you're not going to get that much. However, in my very rapid Googling, I was able to find that apparently we synthesize over two grams per day. So it is, it's not clear to me how much of this we actually need to consume, uh, exogenously. Do you have any thoughts on this myo inositol?
0: No, I think you're totally right. We can make it and we don't need it from foods. And then going back to this idea, like if it's in an animal, you're going to get it. Like, you know, if an animal's making it, I'm sure it's in an animal. What they're not saying here is how much has been found in meat. This goes back to, Uh, they
1: found uh, two pounds of meat is 300 milligrams. Okay.
0: So there's a small amount in meat and we
1: can make it too. So, and it's made in the kidney. So it is potentially feasible that if you were to eat, say beef kidney, you might get a larger amount.
0: And that's the thing is that many of these nutrients have not been studied in organs in the human body. So often we, we don't, for instance, we don't know what's in a brain. We don't really know what's in bone marrow. We know what's in liver, but' we don't, i don't think we fully understand all the nutrients that are in the organ meats, and this is an, this is an argument to eat lots of the organs. I know that people have talked about the fact that kidneys have diamine oxidase, and I know that people have found improvements in histamine sensitivity eating kidneys or kidney supplements like from ancestral supplements. Shout out to the sponsor um, but I think there's it's fascinating to understand and I wonder I wish we could do detailed analyses of all the organs and parts of an animal and get a really good sense of where these things are, I think that we would see many of these nutrients in places that we didn't expect.
1: I think uh, given enough time and enough effort, I might end up having a liquid chromatography gas uh, spectroscopy uh, device in my apartment. You never know.
0: What you guys don't know is that Nathan has a metabolic cart in his apartment. So we're going to be measuring VO2 max and uh, respiratory quotient Nathan also has a microplate reader which we may do
1: yeah, maybe live at the very end of this podcast we could talk about the uh the shenanigans i'm getting up to.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is turning into a little laboratory here so if you're in if you're in Seattle and you want to have your postprandial insulin checked this is the place.
1: Yep. All right so the last one that they call out is oxidative stress that uh eating meat has been linked to uh cardiovascular disease and they claim that that is pot- potentially because of uh, heterocyclic amines. Um, and they do claim that, uh, the, the founder of this site when he ate a meat based diet had a low GGT, which they say is a potential marker for oxidative stress. So, uh, what do you think about oxidative stress?
0: I think that clinically we see the reverse. Um, and this is something that's pretty easy to measure. And I measure in all my clients, I measure eight hydroxy two deoxyguanosine. I measure lipid peroxides. We can measure things like F2 isoprostane and what we see is that no, levels of oxidative stress do not rise in people on carnivore diets. You can also look at the GGT, which is gamma glutamyl transferase. And they do note that Joe Cohen, uh, the guy who is the founder of Self-Hacked, did a carnivore diet, and his GGT did not get elevated. I did a podcast with Dr. Joseph Mercola. That should be out later this summer. Before that podcast, Dr. Mercola and I were speaking, and he said, I'm worried about you eating all this meat. Have you checked your GGT? I've checked it multiple times. Mine is between 12 or 13, so my GGT is also very low. So we don't see oxidative stress. One thing I will mention to people here is that polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines, have been associated with higher levels of oxidative stress in, a, in one uh, non-experimental or observational epidemiology study, which is not causal. So what's interesting here is that many of the plant compounds that we think of as beneficial, like sulforaphane, can also increase oxidative stress. And if we look at the way that polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines are metabolized in the human body, they act through The same mechanism in the liver as many of these plant polyphenols, suggesting that our body can detoxify both of these now. Just so people know what I'm talking about, the charred surface of meat, the blackened surface of meat, that is a collection of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. As I've spoken about before, I don't think we should overconsume these, but I don't think that a moderate amount is going to harm a human. And the studies that I've seen suggest that it's only when we are consuming very high levels of these. In the study, the quote is from extremely browned, burned ground beef, that they found any amount of correlation with colon cancer. But that's the concern, is that polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heterocyclic amines, may be associated with colonic adenoma, precancer formation, or oxidative stress. And I think you could get there by eating a ton of charred, burned meat, but there are so many ways to mitigate that, whether it's sous vide with a non polyethylene bag, you can use a polyurethane bag, like a stasher bag, you can just not overburn your meat. I think that this is one of the arguments against grilling, you guys, and you can all just hate me now and throw tomatoes and stuff, but look, grilling and Traeger grills and smoking, the reason it tastes that way is because the meats have more polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. If we want to mitigate these, We should be like searing briefly on cast iron pans and then you're not gonna get as much. But I really have some concerns about excess grilling, excess smoking of meats. That is going to increase these compounds. I do think our body can deal with some of them, but we should not overload our bodies. I think that there are claims that a meat-based diet is going to lead to oxidative stress are not seen, but we theoretically could create high amounts of these compounds if we're not careful about the way we're treating our meat
1: that makes sense and i think with the grilling it's when the the fat drips down and catches fire and the uh smoke that releases the polycyclic polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons which then sticks to the meat so if you're not grilling it or you're not creating a whole lot of smoke uh you're probably doing all right there
0: yeah and so that's one of my things guys like i've seen all kinds of people peter atia you know all kinds of people talk about their traeger grills and i'm thinking you, that's not something that you want to do. You do not want to be smoking meats. I mean, granted, you know, it's all, you know, shades of gray and moderation, but I don't think we should be smoking all of our meats. I think that's going to create a lot of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons.
1: Interesting. Well, that covers this article. Um, I think they have a little bit more detail in here about, uh, potentially genetic things. And, you know, I looked into their you know, the SMP that they brought up here briefly, but it didn't seem to be super interesting. Um, they claim that some people have horror stories from the carnivore diet. Maybe we can touch on these briefly. Uh, they claim that some people develop scurvy. Although I believe earlier in this article, they claim that they haven't seen a case of scurvy. So I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there.
0: I've never heard of a case of scurvy. I mean, to be, to be real with people, scurvy is a real disease. And if you, uh, if you eat only beef jerky or you eat only cured non-fresh meats, you could give yourself scurvy on a carnivore diet. Yep. But if you eat fresh meat, you will not get scurvy on a carnivore diet.
1: And that is in the literature that has happened. Someone ate exclusively canned beef and they did get scurvy. So stick to fresh meat, um, and don't overcook it too much. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. They claim other people have, uh, fallen into depression, suffered cravings for fruit, vegetables, and sugars. Um, I can tell you my, my cravings have basically disappeared and any hint of any depression is uh, long since gone.
0: Did you have some mood stuff before?
1: No, but I just think my mood is considerably more stable now and positive, um, which I've, I've heard from other people, friends who are on the carnivore diet and the general people. And I think you've spoken about the potential uh, inflammatory mechanisms and there's good research to support inflammation as a cause of depression. Um, so a carnivore diet should lead to lower rates of depression. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that if anything, uh, when I went on a carnivore diet, people have probably heard me talk about this within the first few days, I felt like I was a much happier, more emotionally resilient person. When I interviewed Cassie wild, which will be coming up uh, next week or the week after on the podcast, guys, she talks about how her mood improved. I believe Peter said the same thing. I hear it so often, you know, I'm formally trained in psychiatry. I like to think holistically. I don't really think of myself as a psychiatrist as much as I think of myself as a physician, but uh, the mental health benefits of a carnivore diet are pretty darn clear. So I have not encountered anyone that had issues with uh, a carnivore diet worsening depression. Although again, the overarching caveat here, and what I just want to give people the context is that depression um, is multifactorial. It's probably linked to inflammation and like any of these things, you know, if we're not eating nose to tail, I do worry we could develop nutrient deficiencies. But when I saw this article, I thought, man, I really want to talk about this because nose to tail answers every single one of these deficiencies. So interestingly, I'm going on the podcast with Joe Joe Cohen this week. So I'll be on the self-hacked podcast. I'll be able to answer some of these and talk about the carnivore diet. And I will certainly post when that podcast comes out. But I think that so many of these uh, concerns are answered by a nose to tail carnivore diet.
1: Yep. Nose to tail, eating from the ocean, eating all these weird things. You can get some octopus, some sardines, some salmon roe, some tripe, just, kidneys, tripe, kidney, liver. whatever you want from the animal, from a single animal, multiple animals, whatever you got. Um, so cravings, I think uh, this has been talked about quite a lot with carnivore that people see their cravings, but basically vanish for pretty much everything. I, do you have any clients that you have uh, heard that from?
0: I think that over time, the cravings do vanish. At the outset, some people experience increased cravings. And I love that they say, increased cravings for fruits and vegetables. I think that this is probably... Don't uh, forget the sugar. <laughs> yes, the sugar. When we're craving sugar, clearly that's because it's so valuable nutritionally for us. I think that this is an adjustment phase. So if people are thinking about going on a nose-to-tail carnivore diet and they uh, they experience sugar cravings, it's not because sugar is beneficial for you. It's not because fruit is nutritious. It's because your body's adjusting, your insulin is dropping, and there's an adjustment phase as you move into ketosis and you change from carbohydrate-based metabolism to fat-based metabolism. I know when I first started Carnivore um, many months ago now, I guess at least nine or 10 months ago now, um, I, I walked into the grocery store one time and I thought, oh man, all the fruit looks amazing. And it, you know, it's just my body adjusting. And then a few weeks later, it kind of vanished and it was fine. And I don't have cravings for carbohydrates or fruit at all now.
1: I me mean, neither. I can walk through a grocery store and it pretty much doesn't look like food to me at all until I get into the butcher's counter.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm impervious. I just walk through the grocery store. I'm just like, you guys got nothing on me. I don't have any interest in you. And I walk straight up the butcher's counter and ask them for an entire beef liver. <laughs> 10 pounds. Very, very
1: nice. <laughs> I have not done that yet, but maybe I'll give it a shot. They also bring up uh, menstrual irregularities, which we talked about, thyroid problems. We talked about that. And then the last one they bring up, uh, high cholesterol, which I have. I have I'm have. i one of Dave Feldman's so-called lean mass hyper responders, probably uh, to the max. I think Paul spoke to uh, Tom Dayspring, an eminent lipidologist about my lipids. And he claimed that my uh, ApoB was some of the highest he'd seen. And I guess uh, you would probably recommend to listen to your podcast with Dave Feldman if folks want to hear about cholesterol, right?
0: Yes, I would I would recommend Dave's work, and I would recommend the podcast that Dave uh, was gracious enough to do with me. On this podcast, we talked all about that stuff. The long and the short of cholesterol, you guys, is that when you are doing fat-based metabolism, you are going to have more LDL in your blood, and that is not a bad thing. If you look at the research, this is research from David Diamond, research from Ivor Cummings, research from Dave Feldman. That research does not suggest the idea, and these are stratifications, re-stratifications of uh, Framingham data, re-stratifications of NHANES data. These are large cohorts of data. The research does not suggest an association between elevated total cholesterol or elevated LDL cholesterol and increased cardiovascular risk. And furthermore, if you stratify people into groups of people who have high HDL and low triglycerides, there is no evidence that rising LDL is associated with cardiovascular risk. And why should it be? I think that Dave is totally right. I think that he has something called the energy model of lipids and the idea that if you are burning fat, which you are doing in ketosis or a carnivore diet, you are going to see more fat in the blood. You are going to see more LDL, which is carrying fat. You will not see more free fatty acids. That's a completely different thing. You will see more uh, LDL in the blood. So that is normal. It's like if you're a diesel car and you look at the fuel line, it's going to have diesel fuel in it. If you are burning fat, you are going to have fat in your blood. You are going to have more LDL. Your body is moving triglycerides around your body. It's going to increase the LDL. We know that ketones share a common pathway of synthesis with cholesterol as well, and that increasing uh, saturated fat in the diet can lead to increased cholesterol synthesis. I see this when I do cholesterol panels with my patients. I do uh, a panel through True Health, and we look at desmosterol, which is a cholesterol precursor, and we see that people on ketogenic diets, carnivore diets, make a lot of desmosterol, meaning they're making a lot of cholesterol. This is not a bad thing. They are using the cholesterol um, in the body. They are trafficking the cholesterol. It doesn't cause atherosclerosis, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others. Now, there are conditions in which you can have elevated LDL, and this may be an indication of insulin resistance. So, the overarching idea here, and I think many people will say in the lipid field now, is that the main driver of atherosclerosis is probably insulin resistance and pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome. We don't see that at all on people on carnivore diets. Fasting insulins are very, very low. There's no inflammation in the majority of these people. So the idea that elevated cholesterol or elevated LDL on a carnivore or ketogenic diet is a bad thing is essentially um, not a concern at all. And it's a very common pattern. It's it's essentially almost everyone I see has it. It is normal human physiology to have your LDL rise When you are on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet, that is not something to be concerned about. Check out the podcast I did with Dave and have your mind blown about cholesterol. The title of that podcast is why everything you've been told about cholesterol is wrong. So that'll be a good one for you guys.
1: And I would add to that, that I've learned recently, thanks to, uh, Nick Andre, my friend, uh, also a software engineer based in Seattle. Um, you can, he's tweeted some great stuff, uh, Nick Andre on Twitter, uh, that it's completely almost completely implausible for uh, LDL to be causal in heart disease. If you actually look at the pathology, if you slice open people who have died uh, in accidental deaths and look at their uh, arteries, the plaques form prior to the deposition of lipids. Um, there's some really interesting stuff there, and maybe we can talk about that in the future. But um, looks like probably heart disease is... Related to insulin resistance, inflammation, maybe even autoimmune uh, in nature, which is pretty fascinating.
0: Damage to the arterial wall. There are all sorts of interesting ideas. You know, the amount of LDL in your blood is constant, and plaques only form at certain places, suggesting there's something that is initiating the injury. Um, whether it's turbulence causing arterial wall injury. I know David Diamond feels like there is potentially damage to the vasovasorum, which is a series of blood vessels that supply the artery wall. So the the actual arteries have a blood supply to the artery, and if that becomes occluded, the artery can become necrosed in the in the uh, in, in the you know intimal and medial layers of the artery, and perhaps that's the initiation of an atherosclerotic plaque. But that is not directly a result of an LDL particle. So lots of interesting stuff on LDL.
1: Yep. All right. Well that polished off this article. Wasn't Uh, there
0: some stuff about TMAO in the other article? I definitely want to talk about that.
1: I I recall there was, but I didn't find it when we were scrolling through, but I guess let's, one of these articles did call out uh, TMAO. Uh, So I guess let's talk about that.
0: Yeah. So TMAO is trimethylamine oxide. It's formed from a compound called trimethylamine, which is an enzyme. There's an enzyme in the liver. So basically this is really interesting. Stephen Gundry likes to talk about this, but the TMAO thing, the only thing, the few things I will say about this is don't be worried about this um, because of these reasons. They're, I think that it's possible that TMAO could be a bad thing to have in your body. Um, but what we see is that probably TMAO has been associated with Uh, atherosclerosis, but there are no real studies that show a mechanism. So again, it gets to be this epidemiology. So I think what's going on here is that elevated levels of TMAO in the blood can correlate with atherosclerosis. That doesn't mean TMAO causes atherosclerosis. And what we discovered was that there is an enzyme in the liver, FMO3. Yes,
1: I believe that was right.
0: FMO3, FOMO3, Uh, that is under the control of insulin that converts TMA to TMAO. So the idea here is that if you are insulin resistant, we see increased activity of the enzyme FM3 or FMO3, and you're going to get increased TMAO when you're insulin resistant. So uh, I think Amber O'Hearn did a great talk at the Carnivory Con this year suggesting that many of these biomarkers are just a proxy for insulin resistance. So elevated levels of TMAO, one of the expressions, one of the experiments that I would love to see happen is carnivores checking their TMAO levels. I'm going to get mine checked. I've got a feeling we can take bets. We can do it over under. I don't think it's going to be very high. I think what's going on here is that for people who have elevated TMAO levels, they are probably insulin resistant more than anything. And that elevated TMAO is probably a proxy for insulin resistance. The reason people get worried about TMAO on carnivore diets is because choline and carnitine, which are high in carnivore diets, and I would argue that's a very good thing for many reasons, may result in the formation of TMA, the precursor to TMAO. But I think that it is probably insulin resistance which is driving the formation of actual TMAO, and that that is what we are looking at with TMAO issues. The other thing with TMA formation or TMAO formation is that choline and carnitine are critical nutrients for human health. We do not want to limit these. And it just drives me nuts that people are vilifying red meat as a source of choline and carnitine, and they're immediately forgetting that choline is hugely important for the formation of phosphatidylcholine. Indeed, choline supplementation has been found to improve non-alcoholic fatty liver disease many times over. And we know that choline deficiency could easily cause fatty liver. There are many now that are quite concerned that choline deficiency, limiting choline will cause non-alcoholic fatty liver. That's a very bad thing. Choline is also a precursor in the formation of acetylcholine, which is a critical neurotransmitter in the human brain. Carnitine we know is valuable from an antioxidant perspective in the human body. So these are valuable nutrients. We should not let the, the community... Uh, at large vilify these important things at the, just saying that they may lead to the formation of TMA. I really believe what's going on here, like I said, is that it's insulin resistance driving this enzyme, FM3 in the liver, and that that may produce more TMAO, but it's not the TMAO that's a bad thing. It may in fact be the insulin resistance that's a bad thing. And that's what we're seeing it as a proxy for in the human body. The other thing to note is that many fish have preformed levels of TMAO that are 40 times higher than what would be observed to be formed from an equivalent amount of choline and carnitine in a similar amount of meat from uh, red meat. So, And the other thing is that vegetables can produce TMAO or have preformed TMAO. So that is the thing that everyone leaves out when they're talking about TMAO. They're too quick to vilify the compound, uh, to vilify red meat, without talking about the fact that everyone can have high TMAO, there's something else going on here. Interestingly, in the conversation I had with Stephen Gundry on his podcast, he noted that he had multiple clients who were vegan and vegetarian who had elevated levels of TMAO. So how about that, you guys? So people vilifying red meat, I think there's more to learn about TMAO. I don't think it's um, really... The issue itself, like I said, I think it's a proxy for insulin resistance and insulin, uh, excess levels of insulin and insulin resistant states driving this enzyme FM3 in the liver, or FMO3. Um, But the fact that Stephen Gundry could have patients with elevated levels of TMAO who are vegetarian and vegan just flies in the face of the idea that red meat is is to blame here. So don't let red meat be vilified for TMAO. Hopefully that's helpful, you guys, because people always ask me about that.
1: Yep, and we were chuckling before we started recording here as we looked at the papers. They all had in their mechanistic diagrams just an arrow from TMAO molecule to atherosclerosis with no in-between steps, which seems um implausible.
0: It's like an assumption, you know. It's I don't think the mechanism has been worked out. I'm again, I'm, I'm not convinced TMAO is directly atherogenic. I think that what we're seeing here is that it's just an indication of insulin resistance. And so we've talked about insulin resistance many times in this podcast alone, I'll just say a few words about it. Basically, insulin resistance is just this idea that um, you have too much insulin floating around in your body because the muscles in the liver are not responding to it well. We could do a whole podcast about what causes it. I think that w- the widely accepted things or the things that probably cause insulin resistance are inflammation, which is a whole nother murky topic, and perhaps in some people, carbohydrate overconsumption if they are metabolically deranged or sensitive to carbohydrates. I'm not convinced that carbohydrates cause insulin resistance per se in all people,
1: but... My uh, pet theory right now is that uh, carbohydrates, processed foods, specifically wheat flour, uh, could penetrate the gut barrier leading to inflammation, and then the combination of the increased blood glucose, the inflammation, the damaged gut barrier leads to a whole bunch of inflammation, which then leads to insulin resistance.
0: I definitely think that there's a lot of evidence that inflammation uh, is highly correlated with insulin resistance. I think those are connected. I think there's very plausible mechanisms involving mitochondrial dysfunction uh, and inflammation connected to insulin resistance. And it
1: makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, I was reading recently that uh, CD8 cells have improved antiviral capability uh, when insulin is high. So generally, if you have a viral infection... Uh, your body will actually trigger insulin resistance at the muscle with TNF alpha, which increases insulin, which improves the efficacy of CD8 cells.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So these are molecular mechanisms gone wrong in metabolically unhealthy humans. Evolutionarily, it's probably a very good thing to have insulin resistance during an infection, but yeah, inflammation. So how do you get rid of inflammation? Well, you avoid oxidized oils You avoid plant oils, you avoid immunologic activation through, I would argue, plant triggers, lectins, things like that. I've got another podcast that I did that should have come out the week before this where I talked about lectins with Paul Mason. So lots of stuff there, guys. Anything else? Should we wrap it up, man? We're rolling.
1: Yeah, I guess we should wrap it up. I guess I could talk for a minute or two about my ridiculous experiments here. Yeah. Why don't you tell people uh, what you're doing? Well, we got a metabolic cart because I was interested to experiment with uh, my VO2 max training and also curious to measure respiratory quotient, which is uh, a measure of how much uh, fat versus protein versus carbohydrates you're oxidizing as a percentage of exhaled CO2. So if you, yeah, we don't really need to get into the details there, but you can tell if you're burning fat, burning protein, burning carbohydrates. So I wanted to do an experiment to ratchet up the protein as we were talking about, perhaps eating too much protein to see what happens to respiratory quotient. Um, and then myself and Nick Andre are also working on doing at home insulin assays using what's called an ELISA, which is a, um, enzyme fancy, linked, fancy pants, enzyme linked, uh, immunoabsorbent assay. So we bought some old chem lab equipment from eBay for a couple hundred dollars <laughs> and, uh, we're off to the races. So hopefully we'll be able to provide some results on Twitter. That's uh, Nathan equals one and Nick Andre on Twitter. Um, Maybe Paul will retweet us um, when we have some some data with uh, insulin levels at various intakes of protein and fat. Um, See what happens with that.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see those results. It's cool that these guys are becoming scientists and pushing the field. Like I said, these software engineers, they're just too dang smart for all of us. And they're helping to really get us all to, uh, be a little bit more cognizant of the nuances in in this field. So it's really cool to have them along.
1: Yep. And with any luck, we'll get Paul in here and measure his insulin and maybe his VO2 max and we can report back.
0: Absolutely. Well, Nathan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on with me, man. Thanks for helping me go through the study and adding your commentary. It's very appreciated. And I think that it's probably gonna be more interesting for people to hear a little back and forth than just me talk. So I appreciate you coming on, man. And
1: no problem. We'll have to Happy get you, to do
0: it. We'll get you back on soon when you've got those results. We'll talk about it. Yeah, sounds good. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this one. It's been a pretty in-depth one, but I hope it'll be valuable for you guys because we, I feel like it's just going to be a valuable tool for people to respond to these criticisms. If you made it this far, you deserve to go eat some liver or egg yolks or fat or meat. Enjoy it. And as always, stay radical. All right, boys and girls, there it is. Man, that was a solid one. Now we're in 45 minutes. We touched on all of it. I think that the only thing that I want to do in more detail, and hopefully I've done this plenty in the past, is talk about polyphenols, why they are not all they're cracked up to be. We talked about everything in this episode. We got TMAO. I'm going to talk about the microbiome more, but generally I think that the objections to the carnivore diet are extremely weak And I think that more and more people are going to start to appreciate the fact that this diet is extremely powerful and doesn't really have any downsides. I guess the only downside for some people is they don't get to eat plants anymore, which people find entertaining. But for so many people, this diet just provides a great source of the highest quality nutrient foods. And that is invaluable. So as always, I believe that if you're eating more animal foods, you are going to do better. And if you want to eliminate all the plant foods, man, you are going to kick some major ass. So check it out. So that is my stuff. As always, my newsletter, paulsaladinomd.com front slash newsletter. I'm putting good articles in there, guys. I'm putting good content. I hope you guys are liking it. I'm getting great feedback. I've got a book coming out. It's called The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. If you have ideas for the cover images, let me know. Shoot me a DM on Instagram. It's Paul Saladino, MD there. If you guys don't know, check out ancestralsupplements.com. Check out juve.com front slash Paul. And you know what to do. Stay radical. Come down to Southern California and surf with me. All right, guys, later.